This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. There's increasing acceptance of medical marijuana, but does it have proven benefits? Who can prescribe it, and what are the potential harms in using it? To answer those questions, we're joined by Dr. Thomas Pitelkow, an anesthesiologist and consultant in the pain clinic at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. His expertise lies in cancer-associated pain and advanced interventions in end-of-life care. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Let's talk a little bit about the difference between medical marijuana and recreational marijuana. Yeah, I think that's a great question to start with because cannabis is a really interesting medicine. You know, practically speaking, for basically as long as there's been civilization, there have been sort of these mind-altering drugs. And when we talk about how long cannabis has been around, it's been around many millennia. And it really wasn't kind of until the sort of 20th century, 1937, when the Marijuana Tax Act was kind of the true tipping point in changing a lot of the the current legislation behind the aspects behind medical marijuana per se. And then, of course, in 1970, as we all know, the Controlled Substances Act came into play. And when you really look at the the class of Schedule I medications where marijuana falls, it's really one of the only ones that doesn't have as much um, bad evidence suggesting the, the use of why it gets put on that Schedule I substance. So when we talk about medical recreational aspects, I think the tides are changing a little bit, clearly as the, the old taboo nature of the recreational use has become much more influenced heavily by people's interest in the medicinal properties. You know, in 2012, Colorado, Washington were the first states to truly legalize recreational marijuana. And so we don't have a recreational component here in Minnesota, and that's really what I'll try to speak to most of this program. Uh, medical marijuana is obtained specifically through a uh, registry, uh, or sorry, a, a dispensary where there are licensed people. Now in Minnesota, we have licensed pharmacists, but in other states, there's different walks of life that can be working at these uh, dispensaries to be able to help that customer identify the certain symptoms that we're trying to treat. And that's really the main focus behind the medical component of the marijuana industry. Recreational marijuana, again, that varies, right? And I think you can procure medical or recreational marijuana off the streets versus going to an actual dispensary to buy it. Uh, again, it depends on where you are and which state you live. Okay. So how is this being used? What conditions are being treated currently with medical marijuana? Again, I'll speak to Minnesota. So in Minnesota, we're, we're up to 10 certifiable conditions. And this year, uh, we will be adding uh, one more Alzheimer's disease in July of 2019. But again, this is very state dependent, and that's really when the federal government allows the states to make their individual laws. Depending on the state, there are different aspects. Some states are very descriptive and very specific about which indications people can be certified for. Other states are a little bit more vague. You know, they may just say pain, not necessarily in Minnesota, we say intractable pain. And so we try to be very specific in Minnesota. So the big ones that we see are pain is number one, usually universally across all, all states to date. The other big ones are cancer, and again, cancer can encompass pain, it can encompass nausea, vomiting, other sort of heavy symptoms that are usually very difficult to treat. Uh, We've seen a a surge recently of inflammatory bowel disease states, uh, because there's been some evidence talking about medical cannabis for that as well. Those are usually the big ones, but clearly 
terminal uh, life expectancy, you know, with, with various disease states, you know, really severe de- diseases like uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, HIV, AIDS. You know, again, a lot of these chronic conditions that have multiple symptoms associated with them are the big players when we look at sort of the certifiable conditions. Mm-hmm. I guess I've seen it prescribed most for pain. Mm-hmm. And is it a particular type of pain? Is it neuropathic pain or inflammatory pain, mechanical pain, or is it pain in general? I think from, from the patient's perspective, definitely they're, they're most interested in pain in general. And again, that, that really highlights from the pain standpoint, as a pain physician, my goal is to really try to tease out what type of pain are we dealing with. At the end of the day, that usually helps us provide a very prescriptive plan for the patient, whether that's a physical therapy regimen, whether that's a certain medication or injection or some advanced therapies that we do, like spinal cord stimulation or intrathecal pain pumps. But at the end of the day, what we really need to have the best data for in, in the medical cannabis world is truly neuropathic pain, which, you know, as we know, is defined really as a, an, an injury directly to the nervous system, which is different than kind of more that somatic pain, which, again, is more that broken hip or, or kind of bruised muscle uh, from, you know, playing weekend football. Mm-hmm. You mentioned dementia, which made me uh, take note because I'm a geriatrician and uh, I recall we even many years ago we had a component of uh, cannabis available for improving appetite mm-hmm. in uh, we would occasionally use it in dementia patients what's the uh, actual problem that is being used to treat with uh, marijuana in dementia patients so that, that's a great question actually I just uh, have seen a fair number of these patients as well uh, again got to do a little bit of pain and palliative have care and so the concepts of trying to find that balance, uh, particularly looking at sort of, um, you know, we know dementia patients have a lot of um, mood-related issues as well that go along with that. And so uh, I will tell you, there, there are no frank studies that really elucidate that evidence behind wh- where we're using that for. And again, when we look at the certifiable conditions, again, this is vetted by a board of people involved from the community, healthcare practitioners as well, but they look at kind of the evidence and the petitions from the population. So it's kind of an interesting way at which we look at sort of a medical approach to, to sort of certifying mm-hmm. medicines in the, in the society. But as far as specifically dementia, most of it's geared towards trying to help towards mood stabilization okay. and a little bit trying to help that, that uh, patient again, re-engage and stay in an environment that is comfortable uh, and, and appealing to them. And when we prescribe this, are we limited to prescribing it for these certifiable medical problems? So that brings up a, a two points I want to make. So we don't prescribe this medicine because technically it's a Schedule One substance. And uh, given that it's a Schedule One substance, we can't prescribe it. Otherwise, we'll lose our license. So what we do is we certify patients for it. The other part is um, yeah, we were, we're really kind of trying to focus on the aspects that we're looking at for treatment of various disease states, and again, as most of these diseases, they are, they are there's chronic health conditions that are usually more refractory in nature to treat. So that that raises an interesting issue. So we don't actually prescribe it, mm-hmm. we but we do have to become some way certified in order to give patients their ability to obtain this. Correct. And again, speaking to the state of Minnesota, they, they sort of it's all governed by the Minnesota Department of Health. 
So there is a little bit of protection built in to the system, or at least I look at it as a protection because I want to remind our listeners that federal standards, 100% still federally illegal for use of this medicine, which brings up uh, numerous points which we may cover uh, later. That being said, uh, we, we certify patients. We can't prescribe this medicine. And so I try to remind my patients that, again, this is it's a little bit different than the typical medication that we may prescribe, such as a beta blocker or an antihypertensive. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that obligation to patients, uh, again, the rules in Minnesota really just say we need to make sure that we're seeing these patients once a year, which for the most part in the pain practice, we've typically seen people a little more regularly really trying to make those assessments and, and, and tracking specifically how those symptoms are responding to the therapy. I actually I found a great relationship with the two dispensaries. There's two different dispensaries in the state of Minnesota. Having communications with the pharmacist to better understand how each patient is doing, it's a two-way street. I try to learn from them and, and also try to provide them with some information as well as we continue to deal, particularly with the opioid epidemic that mm-hmm. we're, we're facing right now. What's involved in becoming the acquiring the ability to certify patients? Is it a lengthy process? It really isn't. Uh, it's all obtained online through the Minnesota Department of Health as a, as a practitioner. So in the state of Minnesota, specifically physicians, physician's assistants, and uh, certified nurse practitioners are able to um, certify patients. And those are the three only uh, providers that are allowed to do it. And then it's just filling out, making sure that you are a, a member of good standing in your licensed board. Um, and then it's a couple clicks of a button and then a little bit of a wait to make sure that you get approved. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So how is medical marijuana actually taken? Is it in tablet capsule form or are there other formulations of it, liquid, or how is it taken? So uh, again, it gets back to, I think there's lots of different ways to be able to get this medicine in your body. Minnesota, I'll speak to, we, we have a very controlled sort of setting that's set forth. And again, there's fairly tight standards that are put on the dispensaries that is governed by the Minnesota Department of Health and sort of third party regulators. And so in Minnesota, if you were to go to dispensary today, you'd probably see options for some oils, tinctures, capsules, uh, vaporizer devices and vaporizer cartridges, kind of pre-filled devices. Uh, There's some topical agents that are starting to come out as well. So lots of different forms are available. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when patients take medical marijuana for one of the conditions you mentioned, do they have the same mind-altering effects as recreational marijuana? So yes and no. You know, so what I'll, I'll take this opportunity to kind of talk about when we're talking about cannabis, I mean, there's different um, points that I want to make. So a, a cannabinoid is sort of the, the base foundation, right? There's over 500 different natural compounds that we see in sort of a, a cannabis plant. And, and a cannabinoid basically just sort of describes this class of diverse chemical compounds that acts on receptors in cells that can alter the neurotransmitter release between the central and peripheral nervous system. So we know that there are receptors all throughout our body. It's not just necessarily in the brain. Of that, usually there's kind of the endocannabinoid group. So those are kind of the natural sort of cannabinoids circulating throughout our body, much like an endogenous opioid system we have. There's the phytocannabinoids, which is kind of more what we're talking about today. This is a plant-based product. And then there's the synthetic cannabinoids, which is more of a, a true manufacturing de- you know, devised compound um, that's synthetically derived. You know, so when we're talking about the phytocannabinoids, it's, it's a balance really of the THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, uh, and, and then the CBD or cannabidiol. Clearly, it's a mouthful, and there's lots of little acronyms that get thrown around. But THC and CBD are the big constituents within the medical marijuana community that people are tracking. And so when I send patients to to the dispensary, usually I try to provide them with a little bit of base information, uh, talking to the pharmacist to be able to better understand that. All right. 
Mayo Clinic offers medical education conferences at locations around the country and the globe. Learn from medical experts and network with colleagues at exciting destinations. Plan your next CME course by visiting ce.mayo.edu. Join us weekly here at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Has the FDA gotten involved in this? Is, is this an FDA-approved product? So the short answer is no. Again, because it is uh, still 100% federally illegal for use of this medicine. It, is the FDA involved? Absolutely. It's a very tightly controlled medication. And as a result of that, certainly I think that's, that's inhibited a little bit of our progress moving forward with better understanding the medicine, particularly from a... a, a, a a study perspective, mm-hmm. you know, and because there's very tightly controlled regulations. Again, depending on the state you are, it, it presents a very unique situation. And, and many folks in the medical cannabis community, particularly uh, researchers, are, are really struggling. And so they're usually at big academic centers. And, and in many states now, there is a recreational as well as a medicinal component to this. And so because of the federal standards put forth on the uh, medical cannabis uh, research efforts in the medical cannabis research world, you're, ver- you're limited to very small quantities. And this is actually all grown out of the uh, University of Mississippi is the main place where the FDA has sort of allowed medical cannabis to be cultivated, grown, and then sent to the research facilities. The, the, the joke is sort of on us right now because, of course, in the recreational communities, folks can go to these recreational dispensaries and, and buy as much product as they want mm-hmm. if they're willing to fork over the cash. And so it becomes a little bit of a challenging environment right now, particularly when we're trying to study very pure patient populations and better understand things. Sure. Well, we need to think about cannabis, cannabis as a medication, and medications have potential adverse effects. Uh, what adverse effects could we potentially see with the use of cannabis? Again, I think as with any medicine you read, there's there's a lot of different various effects. The big ones I think that are always concerning to me is certainly uh, the, the hot topics right now are, are dependence and sort of addiction. We we do know that exists, and we know that exists particularly from early use uh, for for folks in the teenage years. That prevents the biggest risk factor for lifelong dependence. You know, many of these folks that were actually one of the largest growing portions of the population that are starting to use a medical cannabis therapy are folks in, in the older generations, 50s, 60s, 70s, their likelihood of dependence is significantly lower. Overall, when I talk about dependence, so the interesting points are, you know, there are, medi- there are medicines, if you will, that we can go walk down the street and buy, such as nicotine and alcohol. Those have much higher rates of dependence than uh, marijuana at this level, which again is roughly about 10% when you kind of look at the general population. Whereas, again, alcohol is higher, about 12, 14, and, and uh, nicotine up nearly 15 per, um, sorry, 15% or so. Uh, so, you know, that it, that's the biggest thing I think that patients are concerned about. Uh, usually beyond that, I say uh, there certainly are some cardiopulmonary effects. Uh, you know, the big, big concern, particularly with higher THC products that can alter some of the cardiovascular function and, and risk of uh, myocardial infarction or heart attack is very real. The other big thing is that we do know that there are psychologic aspects, and clearly uh, precipitation of schizophrenia or psychotic breaks is very real for many folks. And again, this is in products with higher concentrations or higher doses of THC. The sort of yin and yang effect of the CBD to THC is also nice, because that's really where I feel like a lot of the evidence looks at, trying to find that balance between those two. 
uh, CBD has is, is helped to attenuate some of those negative effects that the THC does offer patients. And so I try to counsel my patients to say, when you're talking with the pharmacist, ask about the balancing of effect. Because when you start to get off of the extremes, whether it's high THC or high CBD, that's usually where you'll precipitate a little bit more of the potential uh, unknown side effects. Mm -hmm. But clearly, gastrointestinal effects is also a big worry, and other mental health uh, concerns like anxiety and depression, we've also seen that. I want to go back just a little bit to what you mentioned a few minutes ago and the fact that uh, some of the conditions that we have that could uh, maybe benefit from uh, cannabis. Do those exist in children, and are pediatric patients being prescribed this, and then their risk for dependence? It sounds like you mentioned that that may be greater than an older adult. You're right, and I just want to make sure I correct myself. So alcohol is around 15% risk of dependence, and nicotine, as we know, is very highly uh, dependent in that sense, and that's about 30%. You're exactly right, and, and just in the last couple of years, you know, particularly with challenging to treat pediatric epilepsy syndromes, that's really the main indication where we've been seeing the use of uh, medical cannabinoid therapies uh, outside of sort of the terminal cancer diagnosis. So uh, typically in those folks, again, th these are children that have, have struggled for many, many years, and you read many of these stories in the, in the lay press and also the medical news, and just recently there was a, a big company that had received FDA approval to move forward with treatment, particularly of a, a plant-based product. Now, this is more pure CBD, so not as much THC, which again is thought to be more the psychoactive or euphoric-inducing effects. The CBD is actually interesting because that actually potentially is more uh, autoimmune mm -hmm. regulating and has some anti-inflammatory effects and some neuroprotective effects. And so when we talk about the children, children population, that's usually where we're using more of a, a heavy CBD product. Uh, and, and again, trying to focus on how do we alter the, the neural um, immune sort of factors that are playing into these more uh, really dramatic disease states, both for the children as well as for their families. The long-term outcomes just aren't there. Mm -hmm. I, I would argue that I think many parents would say, if my child can have 30 seizures go down to about two, you know, I'm, I'm less concerned about the long-term outcomes because inherently one must think, you know, if their brain is having less electrical activity, that maybe long-term we may have some better outcomes for that. Sure, okay. So if we consider cannabis a medication, medications often interact with other medications. Mm -hmm. Are there some known drug-drug effects with the use of cannabis and some other, other medications that we would commonly prescribe? Again, because of the absence of many of the medical studies, we don't know as much about cannabis as we really need to. So it does put sort of certifiers in a little bit of a unique position because we don't have all those answers. We do know it is hepatically metabolized, and so there is a lot of uh, cytochrome P450 involvement in some of the subsets specifically. But the, the short answer is we don't have full um, known causality between which medicines. Mm -hmm. Clearly, those medicines that we do prescribe and have a little bit better understanding about, I always am very cautious, you know, particularly anticoagulants or right. uh, neuropathic agents, things that can get people into trouble pretty quickly. Again, I go back to, though, as we talked about some of the certifiable indications, it's challenging because many of these people have chronic health conditions and they're on chronic medications. Mm -hmm. The old mentality always holds true, though. You know, start low and go slow. Sure. And so that's usually when I'm talking with my patients. Let's just take it day by day, week by week, month by month. If we're going to make a dramatic change, let's be very mindful of when we're going to do that. Yeah. So it sounds like we have a treatment option that really needs a lot more study to give us more information on how best to use this. Yes. I think at the end of the day, 
uh, we have a, a long way to go. Even though this medicine's been around again for millennia, we, we still have a lot more to understand. Yeah. Is medical marijuana approved for medication use in most states now? I think we're up to about uh, approval use for me medical purposes in about 33 states in the District of Columbia. And this raises you know, several interesting questions in my mind because, again, we get back to there's differences between each state. And, and that's a little bit of a challenge for, for many patients because here we're very fortunate to see many patients from around the world. And that does present some different conversation pieces with them because I can't certify somebody for they live in California, um, but they can go see a physician there can certify. And some of the qualifications are a little bit differently, too. Uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, it behooves us as, as providers to make sure we're really doing an adequate history and physical exam making sure we're documenting all aspects of the physical care that we've provided for folks, particularly for pain care, because that can be a chronic condition for many folks, and that we're very comprehensive in sort of the evaluation and, and thoughtful process moving forward for those folks. Do we need to warn our patients about traveling? If they're prescribed marijuana in a state where it is approved and travel to a state where it is not, are they at risk of being uh, arrested for carrying an illegal substance? Yes. Okay. Again, it is, because it is federally illegal, uh, the current legislation really has not delved into this too much. And again, as the sort of colorful political climate we live in continues to change, there, there may be some different implications around this. Uh, it's not very cost effective for the federal government to park officials at every state line to bust people moving from state to state. That being said, it still is a federal offense if you take a controlled substance from one state to another state. And so really, I, I caution my patients, you know, if they're going on a trip out to California where they have a medical cannabis program, uh, I say, just be careful because even flying on an airplane, it's still, again, sure. that's, that's federally employed agents in that sort of federal space. And so it, it can be a little touch and go, uh, but I caution my patients, just be, be mindful of, of sort of the travel aspects, whether you're going by car, by boat, by plane. Mm -hmm. And finally, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is medical marijuana covered by insurance? No. I didn't think so. All right. It's all out of pocket, and I, again, I caution my patients. It, it can be quite expensive, and that's really where that, that sort of uh, dispensary-patient relationship does come into play, and I, I caution my patients not to get too involved in things because it can get pretty expensive pretty quickly. We've been talking about medical cannabis with Dr. Thomas Pitlikow, an anesthesiologist and consultant in the pain clinic at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us, Tom. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.